Today I'm talking about radical behaviorism and the contingency traps we find ourselves in in the modern era with Dr. Jesse Dallery, a clinical psychologist and professor of behavior analysis at the University of Florida. Enjoy. Um, so how would you define radical behaviorism for listeners who are more unfamiliar with the topic? Yeah, so I think a quick definition um, is that it's a philosophy of the science of behavior treated as a subject matter. So behavior is a subject matter. And, you know, the word radical kind of has unfortunate connotations, um, mm. but it has to do with how behavior is, defi is defined. It's not just public behavior or behavior that we can see, we can all agree that behavior is occurring, uh, but it also includes events inside the skin, including thoughts, feelings, imagining, dreaming, uh, so-called private behavior. So, you know, B.F. Skinner was a catalyst of all this. Um, I used to say that the skin is not an important boundary. Mm. Both events outside the skin and inside the skin are physical effects in need of explanation. So even if the events are inside the skin, they can still be observed, you know, by the person experiencing them. And so they have, they don't have to be excluded from a natural science. And that was, that was the radical proposition at the time, you know, in the 1950s or so. Uh, because it kind of flew in the face of the way behavior had been approached or the science of behavior had been approached by Watson and other psychologists up until then, you know, that it's, it's got to be public. Everyone has to agree that we can see it. You have to be objective, you know, and uh, so, you know, that, that was radical then. Um, but, you know, the idea that, that, there's a, that there can be a natural science of behavior, that might still sound a little bit radical that it can be a natural science like chemistry, physics, biology. But with that comes a lot of assumptions that characterize radical behaviorism, like that, you know. Determinism. Yeah, determinism. Um, it's, you know, determined by physical causes. So every physical effect, including behavior inside, outside the skin, there's a physical cause uh, based on an evolutionary history and biology and a life history of experiences. Mm. Uh, that's that's the short definition. Maybe not so short, but uh, there's a lot more to it, like you know, influences by pragmatism and Darwinian selectionism, and there's a bunch of other influences. So, like on on that point, you you would say that behaviorism doesn't neglect any biological role because you do mention. Um, yeah, no, yeah. no, it's those are those are physical uh, causes and effects as well, and they are not excluded at all. And it's going to run a lot about biology, the role of biology in evolution. And, uh, it's still w widely discussed. I think there's a lot of folks in our field who would like to see a lot more integration between say neuroscience and evolution and behavior mm. analysis, you know, the scientific arm of, um, of our field. Mm. So I think a question that would come to anybody's mind when you start talking about <laughs> even the word mind there is kind of funny, but <laughs> I think, I, I think a, uh, a thought or an idea that would come to, um, yeah, I'm just going to use the term people's minds <laughs> is, uh, is the, um, the question of how do we redefine, I don't know, a concept like an idea or a word, some, some these things, uh, people consider as non-physical um, yeah. within behavioral terms. Yeah. So, you know, words like that, like ideas or values, they sound sort of ephemeral and in a, they put like, they, they place it in a sort of non-physical dimension. Hmm. But as 
natural scientists, we'd approach them as behavior um, or ways of talking about behavior, whether they're public or private. In the case of values, maybe it's a little more complicated because they also imply some social consequences, positive so social consequences, which occurs, you know, by virtue of humans living in social groups, you know, to develop these codified rules about how to treat each other, animals, the environment, you know, those behaviors are what we would call values. Hmm. So something that we were talking about a little bit before we started recording was behaviorism is I, it redefines what the mind is into physical mm -hmm. terms. So I've seen it sort of as a more parsimonious approach to psychology. Mm -hmm. um, so what is your position on how uh, behaviorism matches up with or against other branches of psychology? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I feel that there's more overlap and consistency with many branches of psychology then I think those branches <laughs> recognize. Uh, you know, I think that it's consistent with areas like neuroscience, uh, evolutionary psychology, um, sort of more esoteric approaches, like embodied cognition, mm. social constructionism, um, and there are even ecological, sort of more environmental approaches, even in cognitive psychology. Uh, and the terms and concepts vary, obviously, uh, by branch, but what makes all of these things hang together is a, just a focus on how biology and environment determine behavior. They're natural sciences in many ways. Um, so they don't have a tendency to invent causes that exist in a mental or a psychic universe, like Freud's invention of the id, ego, superego, or even the idea of willpower. Um, you know, those often just refer to behaviors, you know, and we don't treat them as causes. Uh, so there are lots of branches in psychology that do very much the same thing. Um, but there are other areas where they do invent these causes and, and that's their approach. And it doesn't make them any better or worse. They're just different ways of talking about behavior and um, its causes. Um, of course, you know, as a behavior analyst, I'd argue that, you know, a behavioral approach is is often more useful, um, you know, when we when we compare it to other approaches in terms of solving certain problems like, you know, addiction, depression, uh, issues in education, and so on. But that's that's you know, that's an area for debate and probably another another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> would Would you say that's because it, it behaviors and places the onus on the environment and and changeable factors rather than some intrinsic quality of the individual? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, big, big part of uh, our approach is to look to the environment for the causes of behavior. Um, and it, it, it may also direct us towards biological influences as well. Often they're harder to change than environmental influences. Um, but, you know, if I invent a cause like uh, they're using drugs because of a lack of willpower as a clinician um you know i'm also a clinical psychologist i don't really know what to do mm. with that accounting i uh what, what do i need to do to increase willpower and then how will that increase in willpower change behavior what the individual does instead it's often more practical or it is more practical to focus on the environment if i want to change say something like problematic um, substance use. 
It kind of in that same vein, as a clinician, how has the philosophy of radical behaviorism shaped your approach? In many, many ways. I think uh, the way I approach behavior um, is it's heavily influenced by the philosophy, but it's also heavily influenced by the science as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that it does clinically for me is I based on the assumption that behavior is determined, I assume that the behavior is caused and and I look for those causes in the the past. It could be from early childhood. And this is something that all psychologists do in clinical settings, but also in the present, you know, what's happening currently that's contributing to the problem. Um, I think it also underlies my approach in the sense that, you know, philosophically, when we try to, understand what a person means when they use certain words Hmm. well the meaning of the word is 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 you know determined by you know it's it's determined by its function yeah things in the environment it's function um so when someone says i'm depressed for example this is a simple example i might ask well what is it about you know your behavior or what's happening in your environment that leads you to say you're depressed uh, or if they say their child is selfish, what is it about the child's behavior that leads you to say they're selfish? Right. So it really, you know, means getting into their sort of verbal uh, cultural environment, essentially, to understand what they mean um, and then go from there. And, and based on that, too, I think one of the things that being a behaviorist uh, provides is a sense of understanding and compassion. Mm. You know, given that that we are products of in complex environments and complex, you know, evolutionary histories, there, there are causes and behavior can be understood. Um, it doesn't mean we need to excuse it, you know, if it's a morally reprehensible behavior, for example. Uh, we can still hold people responsible for their behavior by imposing consequences and the like, but we can understand it. And... I think that just provides a level of compassion rather than blaming the person for something inside of them that's wrong, which I think is a conventional way of thinking about many problems. Right. So kind of taking this um, determined uh, causational approach, um, one thing that's kind of notable is that patients, at least from my experience, um, still find the feeling of autonomy to be important. So um, yeah. how, how do you kind of reconcile the fact that the feeling of autonomy is so important, not only in you know clinical settings, but also more generally? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting, the issue of autonomy. Um, you know, the, the philosophy assumes, just assumes that behavior is determined. We don't have Hmm. There's no solid data on that, and there could never be, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, when we say that there's no autonomy, we're saying essentially that behavior is caused by something. Right. You know, the opposite would be that it's uncaused. Uh, and creating autonomy, the feeling of autonomy, of having control over your life can be really important in treatment, you know, especially if that's part of the goals of the client, you know, the client. Clients often, you know, state they feel trapped, you know, that they don't have autonomy, they're trapped by their past, by their job, by their relationship, whatever. 
Um, and so talking about autonomy and freedom, you know, might mean learning new ways to deal with the past or behaving in new ways to balance the demands of a job or have more fun and values driven behavior. So it's a, a slight kind of translation of autonomy. You know, it's not to say that right. uh, you, you can cause your own behavior in the sense of just, you know, somehow un uncaused it's free will or something right. like that um but we can learn to talk about having autonomy when we talk about having choices when we're not trapped we're not coerced um mm. and when those choices also result in in reinforcement and that, those are often the goals of therapy you know right um so i did i answer your question yeah yeah you did but do you think that sort of this um I've heard you say, maybe not this exactly, but I've heard you kind of imply that this this um, determined way of looking at things, it can also be empowering. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. It is. I, I, that's right. I, I think it, it, it can be empowering in the sense that uh, we do search for causes and the optimistic assumption is that we can find those causes. And once we do that, we can do something about them. We can make mm. the world a better place and reduce the problems that lead to suffering um, and early death, for example, um, you know, in the case of cigarette smoking. Um, right. you know, that's really empowering, I feel like. You know, as a scientist, I'm interested in identifying out of curiosity, you know, sort of just the natural reinforcement, uh, discovering why people do what they do. But then using that knowledge, that scientifically derived knowledge to improve, improve human welfare, you know, make the world a better place. And, uh, and so that's the sense in which I think it's really empowering. So you're kind of implying that um, behaviorism and behaviors practices can expand beyond the clinical realm. Um, mm -hmm. So how far do you think that it, that it goes? Because I know some people see um, behaviorism and they think of ABA and so they think that it just mainly extends to um, education and, and clinical work. Yeah, I think it can go very far. I think the products of the philosophy and the science can increase our effectiveness, our understanding, our compassion, you know, in a, a number of roles um, in our society as a parent, as a teacher, a boss. Uh, as a student and just a human and, you know, trying to understand and solve problems. Um, uh, so, you know, that's at the individual level. I, I think it's also the case that, you know, we can go beyond into the cultural level um, and solve cultural level problems, understand and solve those cultural level problems. I mean, you've already noted a few examples in which it's done so, you know, uh, education, um, therapy, probably most notable in terms of therapy for, for children with um, uh, autism and other developmental uh, uh, issues. Um, uh, but also, you know, yeah, parenting, business, and there are lots of others. You know, so there was a time before the idea of reinforcement was around that, you know, it's a problem, I think, in terms of our ability to make the world a better place uh, you know catching your kids being good <laughs> is a really important thing to do as a parent so it can go it can go much further than that i think in terms of addressing uh, i'm just going to write about this quite a bit um larger cultural issues like global warming and uh, uh resource depletion nuclear warfare and so forth understanding the 
sources of those problems um, in terms of um, you know, environmental contingencies. And, hmm. uh, there's a lot of complicated, interesting issues there. The short answer is I think it, it can and already has extended far beyond the clinic in terms of improving the world and has a lot more potential. Hmm. Some people see the the sort of politics of behaviorism as scary. I remember I was reading um, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think even in there, uh, Skinner mentions that uh, one way people might be scared of behaviorism is that it kind of uh, mechanizes, um, I don't know, the conception of, of human beings. But I, I don't know if you have some uh, a take on whether or not the politics of behaviorism are really that scary. I think um, where my where my mind goes is if behaviorism is a useful paradigm for looking at behavior, uh, it really doesn't matter whether or not we know the environmental influences on our behavior because they're going to be occurring anyways. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the environmental influences are there, whether we know about them or not, right. and, uh, whether we plan for them or not, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's interesting, the idea that somehow um, Skinner's ideas, you know, uh, and he has some very provocative sounding titles for some of his books, like <laughs> Beyond Freedom and Dignity, right? That's one of his, his books. Right. Um, and the idea or the assumption is that somehow the approach takes away freedom and dignity. In some ways, I've, I find it the opposite, you know, right. we want to become free to experience freedom, we have to understand the influences on our behavior. Right. So natural selection did some molding, uh, learning during a lifetime or selection by consequences during a lifetime also does some molding. But, you know, the very definition of operant behavior, which is the main type of behavior we study is also Pavlovian behavior, but operant behavior is it operates on the environment. It changes the environment Hmm. and then it changes us. So the environment can mold us, yeah, but we're better at molding it if we understand how it influences us. Mm. Uh, so kind of going back to what we were saying earlier a little bit, you know, it's not, do we let it mold us by accident and sort of unawareness or <laughs> do we do it yeah. with the science of behavior? Uh, do we do the molding with the science? I like the analogy kind of, you know, the, the idea if we want to become free from the ground, you know, if we want to fly, we have to learn physics. Um, and uh, if you want to be free from accidental, aversive, and destructive social environments, we have to learn about the science of behavior. Um, and then we're in a better position to create social spaces and families and schools, wherever, where we feel free and dignified. And that's, that's what Skinner was getting at. Hmm. You know, he talked about beyond freedom and dignity. He was trying to say there's a way to talk about these things in a way so that we can create more of them. Right. The causes of, you know, under what conditions do we feel free and dignified? Can we create more of those conditions? So sort of in line with that, I think another fear some people have is that behaviorism sort of says since aspects of like personality or the ideas, the politics that somebody holds, since those things can be shaped, um, I think maybe not so much a critique, but a fear that people have is that it erodes personal identity. Um, so yeah. how, how would you justify this sort of uh, individuality within behaviorism? Yeah, that, it's an interesting topic. I, you know, uh, I would start by saying identity, uh, the feeling of, uh, you know, having a personal identity 
and uh, individuality, they, they don't go away with a scientific understanding of them. Uh, it's kind of like the beauty of a sunset doesn't go away mm. once we know about chemistry and physics and the scattering of light. Um, so they're still there. Uh, and in some ways, individuality is even more appreciated in a behavior analytic view, the scientific right. arm of, of, you know, of behavior analysis. So it kind of gets away from the philosophy more into the science, but the heart of a behavior analysis is identifying unique learning histories and biology that give rise to distinct repertoires, you know, distinct personalities and identities, uh, mm. and even ways of talking about those repertoires. Um, in behavior analysis, the main unit of analysis is the individual. Right. So in some ways, I think it enhances the appreciation of individuality. It also emphasizes, you know, the, the, the causes for that unique individuality. Do you think maybe, I don't know, these general fears that people have about a science of behavior come from the, I, I suppose, idea that if somebody was to fully understand uh, how to determine human behavior, I mean, that's a complex goal in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But if someone was able to do that, that they could shape human behavior and uh, human beings in negative ways. I think um, kind of a misconception about behaviorism is like most of the studies originally were done on animals and therefore none of the principles could be applied to humans. Um, mm -hmm. but, but the idea of, of treating humans like we do to some animals in terms of behavioral training to just get them to do whatever goal. Um, yeah. I think some people see that as a nefarious sort of uh, practice. Yeah, you know, and it would be if you didn't, um, as a practitioner, share your secrets mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and made people uh, give, give people, you know, Skinner, I think, wanted to give people the tools to understand the causes of on behavior so that they could become more free, free from coercive environments. Mm. Um, and so currently I would say the products of behavior analysis are already being used, not by behavior analysts, right. but by others in our, in our culture to control behavior in destructive ways. Um, you know, a simple example would be software engineers who use the science to get people addicted to video games. Mm -hmm. That's a problem, obviously. <laughs> and it's caused many, many a relationship to end prematurely because uh, one, one partner is playing too many video games, right? Right. Uh, so, you know, and there are other examples of how products of uh, not just behavior analysis, but Pavlovian conditioning has been used to create effective propaganda mm. uh, and, um, you know, change behavior by virtue of conditioning in sometimes very destructive ways. Um, right. So it's kind of ironic, I think, in sort of looking at cultural trends and, and events these days that behavior analysis is already being used to effectively control behavior, but not by, uh, not by behavior analysts, right. uh, by marketers, businesses, and politicians. And we can see how effective it is. But one thing that would be useful, I would argue, is let's make those tools transparent. I give some people uh, the ability to see these things at work and to see the, the financial motives behind them. Um, to some extent, maybe it would inoculate them um, uh, against uh, 
the more destructive uh, consequences. I remember even a video I, I, I remember from your class, they were sort of doing this behavior analytics study uh, where they had people, I think it was like live meter how they felt about uh, it was a speech as it was going along. Um, so in in that sort of way, do you think that, I mean, you, you say that they're not behavior analysts, but would you say that they're also conducting behavior analytic science using behavior analytic principles? Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting to think of it that way. I, loosely speaking, yes, they're using the technology of the science of behavior to influence, influence behavior. Um, the, the video that you mentioned, um, the individual is Frank Luntz, who's a um, political strategist. And he can use some behavioral, he does use behavioral methods to engineer certain words uh, for um, political purposes. Um, so the famous example is he changed the estate tax to the death tax, hmm. uh, how much you pay when someone dies. But that shift in words created a vast shift in public opinion hmm. about what had been at that point a non-controversial issue. <laughs> the estate tax was non-controversial. He also was the author of talking about climate change instead of global warming. Mm. So he engineers words, um, often using principles of Pavlovian conditioning. You know, right. what word already has some emotional value, you know, like uh, death, for example, the word death, and then attaching it to other words, pairing it with other words, death, tax. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's a simple example, but he's, 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 he uses much more sophisticated methods than that as well, but he's very effective in shifting public opinion in whatever direction a politician wants it to be shifted to. Right. In a, in a sort of way, I, of course, that's not exactly operant conditioning, um, but I think it is an example of sort of a, a science of behavior or at least predetermined um, association, I suppose, that, that people would find unsettling. And it's sort of interesting that people would find it unsettling because I feel like at least historically it's been known sort of that, you know, in politics and in lawyering and, and these activities that you're using, you know, different words that are charged to get different reactions out of people already. It's almost just like bringing a science to the practices that already existed. Like um, marketing existed before there was a science of behavior, I, I'd assume. Right, you know, it did exist before science and behavior, but then I think what happened was it, it got much more effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when when folks from uh, from behavioral science got involved, um, you know, John um, Watson, mm -hmm. you know, one of the pioneers of Pavlovian conditioning and applications to humans. Uh, he was a professor at Hopkins at Johns Hopkins, and he quit um, or was actually fired. Uh, and went into uh, advertising. And he was very effective in that field. Uh, brought what he knew about how to sell goods by pairing those goods with other things. Mm. Uh, and we still have, most advertising relies on um, principles of Pavlovian conditioning. Right. Uh, so... Yeah, it, you know, the observation that it does work uh, is a testament to the principles 
and it's kind of like we, you know we have this powerful technology um and so far it's it's mostly been used outside of therapy and outside of like you know um behavior analytic uh you know approaches to make the world a better place right. it's been used to, i would argue more towards the opposite uh, how to make people <laughs> consume more how to get people addicted to video games uh and there's, I don't know, I guess some irony in that or, or tragedy, <laughs> depending on, uh, right. Or both. Um, I can appreciate the, the, the feeling that with this very powerful technology comes the fear that it can be used for, um, for, for bad. Hmm. I, I do feel like behavior analysis should be taught much earlier than in, in college. And it should be taught to a much broader range of individuals that, than, you know, typically go to college and take such a class because it is so fundamental. It's so, you know, it's everywhere in our culture in terms of how people are influencing each other. Mm. And if we can understand that more, um, you know, as citizens, even, I think we, we can make better choices. We can be more free mm. uh, and avoid some needless suffering you know, by seeing through some of these tactics and especially seeing some of the, you know, the financial motives behind them. Hmm. So this is sort of um, directly related in, in trying to pursue increased uh, consumption profits, so on. Um, one of the things you see is the, the, the tacking of um, these things that exist. I, I suppose susceptibilities of humans is what's going to, calls them um, uh, something like our propensity to eat sugar and so on and so forth. And then you just, you know, in, increase the um, both the, the value of, I guess, the food and then also the, um, the marketing surrounding the food, which I guess by proxy increases the, the assumed value of it. But I, I think that modern statistics, like, uh, I don't know, the obesity rate in the country, um, and so on and so forth would would show that marketing um, and also kind of catering to the susceptibilities of human beings has been fairly successful. I mean, I, I think the one counter example to that would be um, regulation of tobacco companies. But even still, I think uh, you noted that they they still thrive even outside the U.S. and then still they're working here, too. I was wondering, um, how would we escape these you call them contingency traps but do you have a better definition actually yeah um yeah so the contingency trap idea it's is very similar to what you were just describing in terms of susceptibility so we have these you know, biological susceptibilities inherited through natural selection like our sweet tooth you know the ability to detect sweet foods provides more energy and in the past that aided in survival not just us but other other um, species uh and there are other susceptibilities, salts, um, uh, drugs of abuse plug into, you know, receptors in our brain, uh, function in the same way as endogenous chemicals in our bodies. So yeah, there's all these susceptibilities. And then there's later on top of that, the ability to uh, market some products that capitalize on those susceptibilities like sweet, salty food. Um, corporations recently have done a very, Air quotes, good job of marketing uh, painkillers, which has contributed to the opioid epidemic. Um, so there's 
there's sort of two sources in terms of the contingency trap. There's the susceptibilities. There's also the marketing of and engineering of products that take advantage. Um, <clears throat> but it's the idea that there are these really, really kind of immediate reinforcers. You know, uh, sugar, sugary food, salty food, alcohol, smoking, video games, uh, and then the consequences are kind of delayed. The, the negative consequences, the cancer, death, early death, are way delayed. And we know from our science that anything that's delayed is not likely to influence current behavior. And that's another evolutionary uh, characteristic. You know, what's, what's immediate is to be favored because survival may depend on it. We don't have the time necessarily to wait. Uh, and so there's also that susceptibility to being somewhat impulsive, we could call it. And then making that more, say, self-controlled choice, say, avoiding cigarettes, quitting cigarettes or alcohol, not eating sugary foods. It also results in a more immediate aversive experience, some withdrawal uh, or craving. Uh, and so there's a lot of factors that keep us in these traps, these contingency traps. And escape is really hard because of that. Um, you know, in many cases, that's the reason people come into therapy to escape from a contingency trap escaping at the individual level it depends on the problem but you know talking about those long-term aversive consequences is important understanding what they are we might call that education uh, but it's also importantly about helping the individual find new patterns of behavior that might compete with those old patterns that keep them in the contingency trap um, and providing new sources of reinforcement and, and you know, identifying what might call values that, that um, are incompatible with the old ways of behaving. It was your question about the individual level? You, yeah. You talk, also talk about the cultural levels. Yeah, well. my question was at the individual level, but I was about to ask, um, there also exists, you know, contingency traps at the cultural level. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's the, the one of climate change and then I can think of also maybe you would consider something like political extremism. Um, right. Yeah. How would you suggest to escape, I don't know, these broader uh, cultural level um, contingency traps that seem to, 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 the, to the average person, um, it doesn't seem like much can be done. It seems like you're just kind of in the tide. Yeah, right. It often does feel that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. At the, at the cultural level, yeah, we can talk about contingency traps as well, you know, like overconsumption and consumerism. I think those are the sort of two biggest. They're, they're traps in the sense that they, they, um, they entail immediate rewards, re immediate reinforcers, and then there are these delayed long-term aversives, resource depletion, global warming, and they're not so long-term anymore. They're increasingly contacted in the present. Um, and there are other, you know, sort of bleak and tragic outcomes. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. The extremism piece, too, is another uh, complication that makes it even less likely that at least some groups can even talk about those delayed aversive consequences to the environment and to healthy human welfare. So, you know, can't even identify those. It's much less likely to even act on those aversive consequences or in light of them. So it's kind of like, you know, the addict who's maybe in denial, <laughs> you know, by analogy or, or the family who's trying to deal with it. 
Uh, and so we're kind of in this rough spot culturally, um, you know, and how to escape these traps. That's a million dollar question. I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, you know, it's going to involve the, some uh, rebooting of uh, some features of maybe our capitalistic growth economy. <laughs> That's a lot there. Um, you know, changes in the incentive systems, uh, subsidies for fossil fuel corporations. Um, you know, if we were to pay at the pump what it really costs to get the gas to us, we would be paying about $15 a gallon without government subsidies for the fossil fuels for research and development and other uh, things that they do. Um, you know, it's going to involve exposing the disinformation, the financial motives behind it, uh, reinforcement for more sustainable practices, you know, kind of going back to that, that how to shift from that trapped behavior to some alternative values-driven behavior and reinforcement for more pro-social behavior in general. And, you know, these, always, these ideas aren't exclusively behavioral, you know, that, it can be arrived at through a variety of, of approaches. Um, but I think what we also need is a scientific approach to determining that we're heading in the right direction. You know, we need data uh, about different policies and practices, say just related to sustainability. Uh, you know, what works? How do we know that it works? We need experimental data. Uh, to make some of these decisions. So we need a, we need a science and science of behavior to help, help answer these questions. There's a sort of catch-22 situation that arises um, when you have to have, I, I guess, change in consumption and in um, a materialistic culture where there's obviously a lot of incentive um, for, for corporate interests to I don't know, continue the status quo. I mean, they have obvious incentive in the instance of, I don't know, foods or tobacco and so on and so forth of keeping us in contingency traps. Um, sure. Why do you think, um, or actually, I don't know if, if you even do think this, do you think that they would have any um, incentive so long as we live within kind of a for-profit paradigm um, to get us out of the contingency trap that we're currently in? Right. Um, it's a good question. I would say, generally speaking, no, there are no incentives for um, the corporation and the individuals making the decisions in corporations to promote escape from the trap when the product that they've developed is the thing that is keeping them trapped. Like cigarette smoking is the best example. Uh, Tobacco companies were, were not predisposed to uh, popularizing their internal data, suggesting that nicotine was an addictive substance that led to early death and cancer. They had those data, <laughs> uh, but they, they, they were, there was no incentive for them to come up with a new business model that didn't involve selling cigarettes to minors and marketing to minors and selling to everybody that would buy them. Uh, it wasn't until the government started to regulate it and other advocacy groups, uh, health advocacy groups really started to sound the alarms that cigarettes cause early death. And, uh, and then there were some packaging on cigarettes included in the Surgeon General's warning. Uh, cigarettes were banned from certain public places. Uh, price was increased. Uh, and so then there was an effective uh, reduction in cigarette smoking 
but escape from the trap in that case came from you know things like government regulation, good public health policy, uh, advocacy groups, um, you know, demanding change. Secondhand smoke, obviously, also was a was a major killer. So, uh, you know, it was also not just about the cigarette smokers themselves, but what they did to others. And so that's to various bans and other public health policies. In the absence of those kinds of activities, you know, regulation, advocacy groups, um, you know, uh, what we would call counter control over those corporate interests. Uh, there's not much to motivate change uh, from the corporate perspective, especially when largely their contingencies are about quarterly profit. Um, and there's a lot of nuances to that, that you know, um, but essentially it's it maybe an overgeneralization. Essentially it's quarterly profit that, that's influencing their decision-making. The change escape from the trap is not gonna come from within the, their corporate structure. So what do you make of, uh, I'm thinking about something like small changes that companies will make um, kind of, uh, I think so, there's been some exposure to it. I think somebody brought up the other day um, Starbucks cups, uh, you know, cha yeah. changing their lids uh, to get rid of straws, but it actually ends up being a less sustainable move because it consumes more plastic. Companies do a lot of uh, a lot of PR management, and also something that was mentioned, um, I guess, at another point was just the sort of um, sustainable consumption model uh, that a lot of companies right. will push for. Right. I, I just don't know how you can sort of regulate and uh, counter control the way out of this um, when the goalposts as designed by corporations keep moving a little bit because they keep making themselves um, look better in some instances. Right. Yeah, and that's a problem. I mean, so they are really good at effective PR uh, and signaling that they are environmentally friendly when in fact the practices may still be uh, contrary. Um, you know, so that kind of duplicitous behavior of, um, you know, saying on the one hand, you're environmentally friendly, but continuing to pollute mm -hmm. uh, and create, you know, a large carbon footprint, you know, that, that's a problem. I will say, though, you know, as a behavior analyst, I'd like to reinforce to some extent any, any behavior in the direction of more sustainable practices. Uh, so, you know, if those are, if these are small steps, maybe they, they should be a, not not completely thrown out, like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they still need to be held to account in terms of these larger, um, you know, more consequential uh, behaviors uh, like, like the pollution, like the extraction in terms of natural resources from the planet. Um, and they need to be just, they need to be, those things need to be highlighted and publicized as much as a corporation might want to publicize their new cup, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And, um, so I'm not sure if I answered your, your question there. Um, no, I think it, I think you definitely did. In line with that, and and something you mentioned earlier is so Skinner kind of became pessimistic uh, as time went on about our ability to change as a society in the face of yeah. future challenges. So the question he would ask, and and also one that you've asked. Do we have enough time to make those changes since, you know, these 
these delayed consequences in the case of um, climate and obviously pollution also uh, are already here. Yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a tough question. It's one that I've struggled with and answered in different ways over the years. But, you know, going back to Skinner, uh, yeah, he was initially really optimistic about the ability of science of behavior. And I think some of what I said earlier is, was very optimistic about the mm -hmm. ability of a science of behavior to make the world a better place. And it already, already has, uh, you know, and Skinner was able to see this too, because, mm -hmm. you know, he was alive when he saw the benefits in terms of therapy, education, business and family life. Right. But later in life, he became a lot more pessimistic about addressing these big problems, you know, that kind of running out of time um, and science operates slowly mm -hmm. uh, and can make the observation that still <laughs> almost half the population doesn't even believe in evolution. And that suggests that embracing a behavioral science uh, is probably still pretty far behind uh, in solving problems. Right. And I agree that we don't really have time to fully avoid those delayed aversives, mm -hmm. delayed massive bleak consequences that are part of this contingency trap. Uh, you know, I, I think we are going to experience some of those, you know, bleak and tragic consequences. And I don't mean to just sound pessimistic and just that's, mm -hmm. that's it. It's not for it's not sort of gratuitously pessimistic and it's hard to predict the future too. Right. But, but, uh, you know, um, we're already experiencing some of these things that were at one point considered to be things way out in the future, massive tragic consequences, the flooding in Germany that just occurred, the fires in um, the Pacific Northwest, uh, the, the um, water shortages that are already occur. I mean, there, the, there's a long list of current tragedies. Mm -hmm. um, so I think at this point, it's really about adapting. Um, and um, I think we could maybe still be optimistic about our ability to adapt. I mean, that's sort of the very definition of operant behavior, you know, changing behavior based on changing environments. And we're experiencing and we'll experience more uh, change in our environment. And, uh, you know, hopefully our adaptations will involve more planned, uh, um, scientifically informed practices and policies as opposed to accidental and aversive mm -hmm. uh, way of, of adapting. So you're saying kind of we're, we're past the point of prevention in a lot of ways, and it's kind of just um, time to do damage control. For some issues, I think there's, there's, um, well, I think, I think damage control is also still prevention in mm. some ways. Yeah. Because uh, we, by, by taking action with respect to say climate change, global warming, uh, anything that we can do to lessen its impact is prevention. It will not avoid the tragic outcomes completely, but in many cases may make them less tragic. Uh, and so, you know, any prevention is good prevention. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's still room for that, obviously. Um, but I think you know, just being real realistic, <laughs> I think uh, uh, you know our time is up. Um, the the reasons for Skinner's pessimism are becoming very apparent. 
But again, it's hard to predict the future. We'll see. We'll see if the recent you know, COP26 um, conference actually has any teeth and gets us anywhere in reducing global warming. But there are other problems too that I think we, we can do a lot of prevention about. I mean, we're just focused on climate change here. Um, but there are other things that can, you know, can be mitigated, you know, related to food production and water and resource depletion and toxic, toxic uh, exposures in the environment. There's other, lots of other issues. Uh, if we had time to dive into them, we could, we could talk about those too, but, there, but, but in those areas, there's, there's a lot of prevention that's, that's still possible. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot there to talk about, but I, I know you have to go soon. So there is, there is something I do want to touch on because it's a question sure. um, yeah. that, a, that a lot of people have asked me and, and a question I've had, um, and I'm sure you've had as well. Um, so from my experience uh, in quite a few of my psychology courses, behaviorism was taught more as a historical sort of subject. Um, and yeah. I told you about how this morning I was listening to a podcast um, where Alfie Cohn suggested that uh, behaviorism should be limited just to the classroom. Um, and I was wondering why you think that is. So why Alfie Cohn said behaviorism should be limited to the classroom? Not only that, but why, I don't know if it's psychologists generally, but in a lot of courses, behaviorism is taught as like more of a historical discipline oh, right. that's no longer relevant. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. Alfie Cohn is suggesting that, you know, it is this historical discipline and so it should just remain in the classroom. Um, I got you. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, to me, I, I characterize that as a kind of a lack of scholarship. <laughs> it's not that's not the cause of the behavior, but it's just a description. Um, you know, there's a. The reality right now, anyway, with respect to behaviorism, is that it's probably larger and growing at a higher rate than at any point in its history. In 2019, you know, before the pandemic, there were over like 6,000 people that attended the annual convention. Um, in this last year, in 2021, one can be certified as a behavior analyst. Uh, and there were over 50,000 that were credentialed as board certified behavior analysts. And that's an, there's an exponential rate of growth in the number of individuals certified. So, and I don't know about the numbers internationally, but I think the growth rates are similar and exponential. So it's far larger than at any point in its history. So to talk about it as historical is, con is just, a, a lack of accuracy in the sense that it's alive and well um, and growing rapidly um, in a number of spheres too. And, uh, you know, it's not just education. Uh, it's, you know, obviously therapy, business, uh, sports. It, it, there's many, many applications where it's successful. You know, there's a great article that I love. Um, it's called Great Histories or case histories in a great power of steady misrepresentation. And it's all about the misrepresentations of behavior analysis and behaviorism. Alfie Cohn is a proponent of many misrepresentations. And you know, it's how these steady misrepresentations cause this kind of powerful folklore that's really resistant to correction. Um, you know, it's like these days we have plenty of examples of similar processes in modern society, you know, behaviorists were kind of used to being 
uh, we're, we're used to fake news, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but it, it is a problem and correcting these inaccuracies is a hard thing to do. It's just like the correcting the inaccuracies of fake news and misinformation, especially going back to what we were talking about in terms of extremism and there's more and more uh, ways of grouping together online such that those views are strongly reinforced. But, you know, all I, I would just recognize them as misrepresentations. And, and you know, I, I, I know you've done a lot of reading and sort of the primary sources and reading some Skinner. And I would encourage any, any listeners to read some Skinner, you know, read the primary sources. It's a complicated area. It's not easy to grasp. It takes some time. You know, Darwin's book of Origin of Species, he called it One Long Argument. And I think there's a similar similar in behavior analysis. There's a lot to it. And I would, I would highly encourage someone who's interested to read, say, Skinner's Science and Human Behavior, for example, or about behaviorism. Uh, about behaviorism begins with a list of 20 common inaccuracies of, of behavior analysis. And almost all students of psychology will recognize those inaccuracies from courses in introduction to psychology as, as being taught as true. <laughs> so I, I think uh, checking out some good primary sources is, is a good idea. So I, I promise this is the last question, but uh, this, is, this is something that I have been asked a lot about and I actually had to do reading of, of some different primary sources. And it was, um, it was about, uh, okay, so for, for some context, I was like doing some um, talking with a philosophy group about behaviorism. And then somebody asked me about Chomsky's uh, critique of Skinner's work uh, of, you know, language acquisition. Um, and so I like read, I read some of what um, Chomsky said, and then like I, I listened to some interviews of him talking about it. And Skinner never actually like addresses Chomsky back on the topic. That might give some people the, the idea that um, Chomsky sort of won this debate. Um, but do you see any sort of legitimate uh, criticisms of Skinner's work from Chomsky? Because to me, it all seemed like he, he kind of missed the point. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, you know, I'd say first, there's, there's definitely legitimate criticisms of Skinner's work. And we need that criticism. Uh, we need those conversations. But there's no legitimacy to, to Chomsky's critique of Skinner's work. <laughs> In other words, it's comprised almost entirely of inaccuracies. Um, Skinner, Skinner never replied to Chomsky because at the time, you know, Chomsky was a relatively new linguist and he read a few pages of his critique and uh, discovered that he kind of missed the boat. He just misrepresented the entire book, Verbal Behavior, and kind of just put aside his critique, Chomsky's critique, and just didn't reply. Uh, and, and also at that time, Chomsky was a new linguist. He was relatively young. So, you know, Skinner, as a busy person, <laughs> lots of demands thought, well, why should I pay attention to this new linguist who clearly got my book completely wrong? <laughs> and he later regretted that, obviously. <laughs> because uh, the inaccuracies have stuck around. Um, uh, there's a great response to Chomsky written by Ken McCorkerdale 
1970. Uh, so if readers or, or listeners are interested, check, check that out. Uh, it's a really very fair, charitable, uh, inaccurate assessment of Chomsky's critique in light of what Skinner actually said in his book. Um, and then the other thing too about the critique, you know, if it were true, well, you know, there's thousands of clinics in the United States and around the world who use, for the most part, 90% of what Skinner described in his book to teach kids how to talk, you know? And, uh, you know, when they don't pick it up naturally and there's no difference in process, whether they are taught how to talk or they just learn it naturally, there's no difference in process. But what we have to do in a science is take the natural processes and come up with some concepts and principles so that we can engineer, so we can produce talking in the clinic when kids don't normally pick it up. Uh, you know, so when we teach them how to ask to use the bathroom or to name colors or express feelings, we're using what Skinner described in his book. Uh, and we have the data to show that it works very, very well. If there's a better way to do it, well, that's what the science is for. When it's new, new science to show us a better way, we'll do that way. Ironically enough, I think I was reading something about how kind of the idea of a language acquisition, I think it's a device is the term he used. Yeah. Um, right. I, think, I think that's come under criticism lately, but that's neither here nor there. I know you got to go. So yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for talking with me. I appreciate it. This yeah, is great. it's been fun. Yeah, thank you, Mitchell. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for listening. With any questions or comments, feel free to email industryplant at industryplant.co. See you in another two weeks.